Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thanks for joining me. This is episode number 194. So closing in on the number 200. <laughs> a lot of podcasters out there. I'll tell you what, there are some that have like nearly a thousand or over a thousand episodes. Um, but still for us, 194, that's a lot, you know, so I'm, I'm really proud of this. Um, you know, some episodes are better than others, but thanks again for watching. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, we're live streaming, so, you know, please feel free to join in the conversation. You can leave some comments on YouTube or Facebook, and I'll read them on the air. We'll have a discussion. Um, but, um, yeah, it's all good. You know, we're like nine days away from Festivus, right? <laughs> so uh, the Festivus is uh, for the rest of us, and that's coming up pretty pretty quick. I mean, obviously, it's the holiday season. I'm broadcasting in my living room right now, and you can't see it, but on the other side of my camera is our our mantle with all of our stockings and our tree is kind of over my right hand corner. I've kind of taken over part of the living room. So my family's been good to me and kind of giving me a little bit of flexibility. So we're having some fun with it. Um, but yeah, today we're going to talk about the Electoral College. We're going to talk about Poway Unified School District and Kimberly Beatty. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the controversy with the Cleveland Indians changing their name. Um, so we'll talk about sports names. So I got a bunch of things that I want to cover in this episode. Um, you know, besides the fact that we're live streaming on YouTube and Facebook, you know, I post all of these audio only podcasts on all of the popular podcast platforms. So you can get this podcast on Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I guess it's called now, Google Podcasts, um, Stitcher, Spotify. I mean, we can go down the list of all the places you can get. It's wherever you get your podcasts, that's where you can get this. So we kind of have it on video too, kind of as a bonus. I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that uh, uh, that we do. I think people, some people watch exclusively on video, probably have no idea about the audio only versions. And there's probably that are just the opposite that listen to the audio only and didn't have any idea we did video. So it's good that we do both. It's a nice way to build the audience. Um, Roberto Guerrero on the live stream wants to know who won. <laughs> well, the Electoral College. I think that we're going to let's get into that. Um, the Electoral College, you know, today is the big day. They're voting. And you know, normally on Electoral College Day, it's just sort of a footnote on the evening news that the the electors get together and cast the official ballots for each of the states. And I don't know where it stands right now, but it seems like everything is going according to plan, right? And I know a lot of the swing states like Nevada and Michigan, I think even Pennsylvania, I think they may have already voted and they're all voting for Biden. So there's no, you know, controversy that seems to be happening. I don't know if they've come up with a, a victor yet. Right now it's, you know, two o'clock on Monday, the 14th. But, you know, Biden's going to win this. I mean, come on. I mean, we all know that's to be true. But, you know... This whole electoral college process is just really odd. And again, you know, normally when the president gets the popular vote and they win the electoral college, no one thinks anything of it. We've had a number of elections, uh, particularly in 2016 and in what was it? Was it 2000, of course, when the winner of the popular vote 
was not the winner of the Electoral College. That creates a lot of controversy. But, you know, with going into this process, ever since, you know, the election um, occurred in early November, we've been hearing a lot more challenges to the integrity of the election. And then President Trump and his group of MAGAs, um, you know, they're challenging the whole process to ter- saying there's fraud and, and um, you know, there's essentially a, an election that has been stolen. And they don't necessarily provide overwhelming evidence. You know, in some cases, they'll be able to point to a few cases where, you know, some people that were dead voted and, you know, that some of that's going to happen. I mean, it's not a perfect system. We've got what, like 150 million people casting ballots, something like that. So there's definitely going to be some very tiny fraction of voters, but it doesn't a tiny fraction of fraud, but it doesn't appear that there's been any widespread, you know, um, conspiracy of you know, harvesting votes or or trucking in votes or suppressing votes on Election Day. Um, but yet we still see a lot of this fake news come forward, you know, fake news from the people that object to the fake news of the media. You know, it's kind of funny how that works. Um, but it's also I, I saw this as online. I thought it was a pretty interesting dichotomy because you've got a lot of these MAGAs, these Republicans that are now talking about secession, you're hearing some of those cases of that maybe Texas should secede from the union and maybe they can get some of these other states that participated in the lawsuit to to to. What's the right word? Um, Secede from the union. But these are also the same people that tell you to take a pledge of allegiance to the United States of America that essentially demand unity, um, demand conformity, get in line, stand for the pledge of allegiance. So it's funny how there's all these mixed messages. But at any rate, you know, it seems like the swing states so far today are all going Biden as we expected. But still, it's just an odd process. I mean, the fact that we vote and we vote on election day, but our vote in the end isn't really the vote that matters. The the parties put forward their electors, their delegates in the electoral college system, and they're the ones that actually cast the legit official votes for president, not the people. And so it just makes you wonder, like, how they cooked up this system in the first place. And so it just seems to me that, you know, maybe back in the day when states' rights was a big thing, or more importantly, state sovereignty was a big deal, where, you know, every state had its own identity, its own set of laws. The federal government was a very kind of loose you know, linkage of the states. Um, maybe it made sense then. I don't know. Maybe it was because some of the slave states wanted to have more power. Um, so they felt that they had some way to battle against the heavier population states of the North. But it was definitely a very state centric mindset when you roll the clock back, what, 250 years ago. Um, Angela Ordway chiming in. Do you know the history of it? Well, I know a little bit of it, Angela. Um, I know that it was implemented mainly to give Southern states more power. Um, And some would say that it was a way to kind of 
protect slavery in some of those states. There is some linkage to that. So I'm aware of a lot of that history. I'm not obviously an electoral college scholar, but to me, the whole system just seems kind of ridiculous. It's, it's, it's an ancient vestige. It's a system that, you know, if we were to sit down and, and right now and design the system from scratch, could you imagine designing it with an electoral college? I can't imagine that in a million years. So that wouldn't be the case. Um, but it, to me, this is all falls into the um, into the framework of the the election. It, it, it's a rigged system. And remember back in 2016, President Trump, when he was running against Hillary, was saying, oh, it's a rigged system and everything else. Well, um, he was right. <laughs> but in 2016, it was rigged in his favor because the Electoral College gave him the victory, even though he had lost the popular vote. Um, so it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, the, you'll hear objections. They'll say, well, if there was no electoral college, then, you know, the people of Los Angeles and New York would be the ones that would decide who president is. But that's a false claim because the people would decide. Every one of us would have a single vote. These are this notion of New York or L.A. would be the ones that would decide or they're thinking in terms of geography, of landmass and how which people or at least which groups of people are voting. I mean, right now, our electoral college system is just based on a small handful of states. You know, there's two or three or four, maybe five states that are typically in play every election. And so right now we have a small group of states that are the ones that make the choice. But to me, the one of the bigger challenges I have with this whole electoral college system is the idea that it's a winner take all system in 48 of the 50 states. So in 48 of the states, you know, the the winner of that state gets 100 percent of the electoral college votes. So, you know, here in California, it doesn't matter really who I vote for. I know that 100 percent of the electoral college votes are going to go to the Democratic candidate. It's a stone cold lock that that's going to happen. So the fact that my numbers are not being represented at a higher level, that they don't essentially bubble all the way up to the final vote tally. To me, that's discouraging because the fact that it's a winner take all system, it just reinforces the duopoly. It reinforces the two party system because one of the two main parties are going to get all the votes and any third parties are, are certain to get zero votes. Just the the system is rigged that way. Um, so it, it's just it's just to me really just an archaic system that I really think needs to be challenged. I think this is something that really should be overturned. If this is, if we're going to have one person, one vote, if we're going to have a system that's based on democracy, then of course the majority vote should be the winner. Um, Cause that's the way a major that's the way a democracy should work. Um, but in the end, I do expect that Joe Biden will end up winning. I think he will we'll see him on inauguration day on January 20th. And I think what's happening with Trump and the MAGAs and all of that is just going to be a kind of a curious bit of um, side story um, until something significant is put forward by those people. It's just going to be a lot of noise and a lot of whining. So at, in the end, I don't expect that um, there's going to be anything significant that's going to come from this. It'll be interesting what will happen the day that 
you know, Donald and Melania actually move out of the White House. I think Melania seems to be preparing for it. But again, it just today is the day of the Electoral College, and it's a big news story because there has been so much fake news questioning the integrity of the system. And this past election, according to the people that are managing it, they say this has been the most secure, the, the most um, the, the election with the greatest integrity that we've ever had. And I, I see what the San Diego Registrar of Voters does. I've been down there a number of times. Those are professional people. I mean, there's no way there's going to be any sort of underhanded sort of funny business going on there. I just don't anticipate that at that level, because it seems to me that the people that are involved in the elections are really they're really standing for what they believe is having fair, um, fair elections and really protecting the process of the elections. Um, But at any rate, we'll turn the page on. The Electoral College. We need to come up with a better system. But I don't think it's ever going to change because in order to change, there's going to have to be, I think, a constitutional amendment. And and in those cases, you've got to get, what is it, two-thirds of the states or three-quarters of the states to approve. And in, in, there's no way that some of the smaller states like Wyoming or North Dakota are going to waive their own power that they have, their disproportionate power. So it's something that we're going to have, you know, as sort of a, just an oddball kind of thing that's part of the American electoral process. Um, But anyways, let's move on. Um, I do want to get more deeply into some Poway Unified news because I like to have some local content on this podcast. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about some of these sports nicknames and, and the big controversy coming out of Cleveland. But before I do, you know, I just always encourage you, you know, if you want to support this podcast, I'd be so appreciative. And the things that you can do, number one, is just watch and view every one of these episodes. And if you can, Tell a friend, let people know about this podcast. Hey, it's this guy, John Riley. He's in the city of Poway, California, and it's a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we talk a lot about politics and culture. We talk about, oh, my last episode was all about electric vehicles. We'll talk a little bit of sports. We cover a lot of issues, kind of things that are of interest to me. And and a lot of times we have guests on this podcast. Some really interesting guests have joined us. So we just encourage you to you know, share the love. If you can give us a like, a thumbs up, a subscription, if you can share the episode, that would be really appreciated. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about Poway Unified School District. And, you know, I've commented quite a bit on Poway Unified in the past. I have a little bit of a history there. Um, I was a candidate back in 2014 and um, got to know a lot of the players there, got to know, you know, quite a bit about how the school district works. Um, Right now, they're talking about borrowing money, like at least $20 million. And you're thinking, why in the hell would the school district need to borrow money from some outside source? Well, it turns out that... um, they need to borrow between 20 and $25 million just to stay afloat um, because there's been a state funding deferral. Uh, 
So it appears that what's happening is, is that the state of California up in Sacramento, they're essentially enacting a 35% budget cut uh, because of COVID and, and their revenues are down in Sacramento. And so that's going to be cascaded down to the school districts. And Poway Unified doesn't have the money in the bank to cover this, um, which has been one of my criticisms of this sort of thing. So they're going to be going out and getting some external loans and the cost of these loans is going to be $51 million. I mean, that's going to be the interest and the issuance fees for this. But they claim they're going to make a little bit of interest on the money while they've got it. So in the end, um, they think it's um, – what was they, were they saying? It's um, – ah, it um, – it's going to end up roughly costing the district about $30,000 in taxpayer money to borrow $20 million. And it's going to be borrowed for roughly a year. Um, you know, we can argue about how good or bad that interest rate is. I think it, I'm just kind of doing the rough numbers. It's not horrible. But the fact that they have to borrow money, to me, is really discouraging. I mean, not only... I mean, as school board trustees, what they don't have control over revenue, right? They only can control their expenses. And a lot of times the, the state government, you know, anything can happen with revenue. And they're usually blessed because sometimes they get extra money that they didn't anticipate. But it seems that a lot of times they plan that way, hoping and expecting to get extra money. But when they get short money, then they can kind of... um they can plead uh, that they need more when really they should have reserves in place to save for this sort of thing, to save for these rainy days so they don't have to go out and borrow more. Um, so when I saw this, that they were borrowing money, I'm like, this is just another example in a continued um, cycle of fiscal irresponsibility at Poway Unified, starting with the billion dollar bonds, starting with the... Um, uh, the continuous deficit spending and and then the the need for more school bonds and now the need to borrow money. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And in this article in the uh, Poway Chieftain, uh, board president Michelle O'Connor Ratcliffe said that she was angry at the unfairness of the state's actions. <laughs> I just kind of chuckled when I heard that. And she said, how many districts out there were, re were prepared to take a 35% IOU from the state? Um, O'Connor Ratcliffe asked. And well, yeah, on that level, most school districts aren't prepared because what they do is they spend every nickel they've got and they don't save. Uh, they don't save for rainy days as effectively as they should. Um, so, I mean, I, I can go back and I just tell a story is, you know, back um, back in 20, well, 2014, back when I was a candidate for a school board, um, one of the pieces of, of my platform was is to have more citizen overview of the budget and citizen recommendations for the budget. And to the school board's credit, they implemented a budget review advisory committee. And so I decided, well, you know, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. And I volunteered to be on it. And I was appointed to the, the committee to review the budget. And I decided, you know what, I, again, put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to chair this committee. And we had a really good group. And um, we had... Uh, um, a lot of very experienced financial professionals. Um, we had uh, um, people that were eminently qualified, previous Poway Unified School Board employees um, that had that were on this panel. I mean, it was a really good uh, group. 
And we had done our research and we determined that the school district, and this is in 2016, was in a um, was in a structural deficit. And what does that mean? Well, what it means is, is that their recurring revenue was less than their recurring expenses. And, you know, the recurring revenue is the revenue you can count on every year to as to the degree that you can count on it from Sacramento. And then certainly the the recurring expenses, which is typically salaries. And and you can project that long term based on, you know, the the contracts and you can see what your commitments are going to be on a year to year basis. But what had happened is, is that a lot of times money was coming in, these one-time gifts from Sacramento that were unexpected, and then that put the district into a, a surplus, but it was really a bit of a kind of a paper. It papered it over to a degree that it looked better than really what was underneath the hood. And we said, right now, you've got a structural deficit. You can't continue this process. It's not wise because you can't count on that extra money coming. And so we said... You need to cut spending back in 2016 so that you can ensure the budget is balanced. And back in 2016, the economy was recovering. The economy was doing much better. We were in good times. This is a time to run surpluses and to build reserves. But what did the school board do? They instead went into deficit spending. They instead continued to give out um, pay increases to the teachers union, to the classified employee union, which are essentially all of the non-teachers. And then management got raises and they got raises on top of raises um, because, of course, their contract already gives them their step in column contract already gives them raises based on seniority, based on achieving certain credentials and education levels, then they got a a raise on top of that. And they were spending money that they didn't really have. They were spending money mostly to appease the unions, the unions who in turn endorse these candidates. So um, what it ended up happening is, is that now then in the mid 2000s, when we were having good times, the school district was depleting their reserves. They were they were going through their savings during good times. And I had warned back then, I go, well, what's going to happen when you go into bad times? Then you're going to be screwed. And sure enough, here we are. Sure enough, we're in bad times. Their their reserves are depleting at an accelerated rate. They're going to have to make massive budget cuts because they're finally pinned against the wall. But a lot of this could have been avoided if they had made frugal decisions, if they had made um if they had made smart decisions a few years ago, they could have built up their reserves and not had to borrow any money. They could have uh, made, a, how should I say, they could have made intelligence, intelligent budget cuts years ago so that they don't have to face what will appear to be drastic budget cuts in the next coming years. So it's just a shame that it's turned into this. Um, but it just seems to be the history of the beast. And you look at other local governments, particularly here in Poway, you look at the city of Poway's budget and, you know, they're going through their own sets of challenges, but still they have a fairly um, rigorous Discipline process that for the most part has kept their reserves up and has they've been saving for rainy days. Now, granted, the city of Poway, their expenses are increasing at a faster rate than their revenues are increasing, but still they have a managed 
disciplined process with citizen over uh, overview, and they have a board or a city council that typically will back the recommendations of the budget review committee. With a school board, it's the opposite. When we went and made our presentation to the school board in 2016, we had done it was like a half a year worth of research and committee meetings. We had five minutes to make our presentation. I mean, come on, five minutes. And then we were shushed off the stage. And then sure enough, our recommendations were completely ignored and they went and continued spending into deficits. And now here we are. So I think this is worthy of commentary. So when you when you see there's fiscal woes at Poway Unified, Just look to leadership, look to the people that are on the board who are elected, and that'll tell you the story. Um, And let's use this as sort of a jumping off point and transition as I want to talk about Kimberly Beatty. And Kimberly Beatty is wrapping up her second term uh, as a school board member at Poway Unified. She chose not to run in 2020. And so I don't know when her last day is or when the new school members are going to be sworn in, but... It's got to be any day now, right? Um, or I mean, maybe it's already occurred. I don't know, but I don't think I don't think it has occurred yet um, that our new school board members will be sworn into office. But Kimberly Beatty is stepping down, and I think this woman deserves huge props from our community for the work that she's done. Um, she has been, in my opinion, one of the few voices of sanity that has existed on the school board, and. I think I just want to tell a couple of stories about Kimberly. I, I met her in 2008 and granted, uh, Kimberly Beatty wasn't elected to the school board until 2012. In 2000, I, I met 2008. I met her. She was the coach of my daughter's soccer team because she has a daughter that's about the same age as my daughter. And so got to know her there. Very friendly person, uh, very open, very, very communicative and and, you know, has her heart in the right place. And so I got to know her there. And then later on, when she ran for office, I was like, hey, I know her and good for you. And she ended up winning and she won. This was right around the time when the billion dollar bond news came out um, and she ran for office and she won and got more votes than the president of the Poway Unified School Board. And she's just had a really good career on the board. She, in my opinion, has been really brave. I mean, she's always stood for her principles in the face of fierce headwinds. She's done her due diligence. She has gone through and and done her homework, has read all the bills, has asked a lot of tough questions, has challenged leadership. Um, and a lot of times she's been on the losing end of a lot of these votes, four to one, when, when Charles Sellers was on the board, it was three to two quite often. But what it ended up happening is, is that a lot of the other board members had aligned themselves with the establishment at Poway Unified, especially when John Collins was the superintendent. Of course, John Collins, our disgraced superintendent who was embezzling money from the school district and had all kinds of unethical, immoral acts that were going on under his watch. Um, but definitely there was theft of, of, of school funds. He was um, uh, found guilty in a court of law. And finally, he was extracted from uh, his position as the superintendent at Poway Unified. Leading up to that time, the whole time, Kimberly Beatty was in opposition to John Collins. And 
she was the lone voice, but she ended up being proved right that her um, objection to John Collins was righteous. She stood her ground, stood for her principles. And Kimberly Beatty, by the way, I mean, she's a a very, I would definitely consider her a progressive. Um, She is a a Democrat through and through. Um, I I don't know how she votes for president, but my hunch is, is that she's aligned with Bernie Sanders or of similar mindset. Um, She and I at the national level have very, very different points of view um, about about how our nation should be run and the role of government. But when you got, it was interesting is at the local level, I found that her interests and my interests were very much aligned. Um, I saw when I ran in 2014, I saw huge fiscal irresponsibility with the billion dollar bond. Um, And she was the one that was calling out a lot of this malfeasance, a lot of this corruption. And so uh, at that point, our interests were aligned. And in 2014, when I ran, she actually helped me in my campaign, gave me some really good advice consulted with me, um, told me, you know, tips on what it would take to win. She was actually out on the street, knocking on doors, passing out door hangers on my behalf and for a few other candidates. I mean, I really owe her a great debt of gratitude for her help. Now, granted, I came up short in that election, just lost by about 1%. um, But still, um, I'm really appreciative of her help. And in 2016, I returned the favor. And so, um, now granted, I wasn't going to give her any advice because she knows far more than me, but but um, I was out there knocking on doors and passing out door hangers and really talking her up in the 2016 election. And thankfully, she won. And I'm, I'm really proud of her. Um, and, you know, she ended up stepping down um, at the conclusion of a two-year, ter- two terms, eight years. And that seat is now going to be occupied by Cindy Seitzma who, by the way, was a guest here on the podcast and, by the way, um, I think is going to be a good candidate. I think she has a lot to offer. In fact, I thought her her competitor, Jimmy Karam, also a very good candidate. Um, but she, so anyways, Kimberly's stepping down. I was kind of hopeful she was going to run for higher office. I don't know what her, her goals and aspirations are, um, but I think she served two very um, – uh, Two, two very, you know, solid terms. I mean, something that she can hang her hat on where she did good work. She did the right thing. And I think history is proving out that she was on the right side of history in so many of these cases. Um, so, I mean, I just got to give her huge props. I don't I think that if it wasn't for Kimberly Beatty, I think there's a good chance John Collins would still be the superintendent at Poway Unified. I mean, even in spite of. The corruption, because a lot of the other school board members were very aligned with John Collins. I mean, heck, back in 2000 in early 2014, I remembered this is right around the time I started thinking about running for office back then. um, Collins uh, was having his contract renewed, and this was a couple of years after the billion dollar bond. And Collins was the big cheerleader for that. And he was going to have his contract renewed and they were taking you know, another meeting, there was more public comment. And I went to one of those meetings and I spoke out and said, there's no way you should renew this guy's contract. Um, this is the guy that was one of the architects of the billion dollar bond that disgraced our school district and has going to sink our school district into huge debt. Um, but how can you renew this guy's contract? Um, but of course they did. 
They renewed his contract. The vote was, if I recall, the vote was four to one. Who was the one? It was Kimberly Beatty. She voted against the renewal of his contract. And again, history proved to be on. She, history has proven that she was on the right side of the issue. So, I mean, again, I just I got huge props for her and the work that she's done. Um, it would have been very easy for her to fold her tent long ago. Um, it had been very easy for her to give up because she was frequently on the losing side of a 4-1 vote or of a 3-2 vote, but she just kept going. She was persistent. She did her homework. She challenged the system. She challenged authority. She asked hard questions. And for her, she is a self-described introvert. I mean, that took a lot out of her to really be brave the way she was. So again, I give her nothing but props. So um, Kimberly Beatty, I wish you nothing but success in your future for you and your family. Um, you've done well for our school district and I appreciate you and the hard work that you've, you've done for us. Thank you. Um, okay. So uh, yeah, Poway Unified, um, borrowing between 20 and $25 million because they don't have reserves, which they should have had in the first place, but they plan poorly. They didn't budget properly, but they have a convenient scapegoat. They can blame Sacramento, but really a lot of this is driven by their own failure to manage their own budget because if they had made the right decisions many years ago, then they definitely would have had money available in reserves to easily cover this and not you know, essentially pass on this expense to taxpayers. Okay. So we've got more people chiming in here on the podcast. I know some people have come in, some people have gone out. So thanks everyone for listening and watching. I got one more topic I'm going to get into. We're going to talk about the Cleveland Indians name change, but um, I see Pete Neal said, Hey, wow, I made it to the live show in between zoom calls and Mike polite, uh, another frequent visitor on the, or frequent, uh, yeah, frequent visitor, listener, viewer of the podcast. He also says zooming in or zooming to a meeting and a few myself. So he's in and out. We're all doing business in the days of COVID. So thanks again for those of you listening and watching. You know, again, for Pete and Mike, if you guys are still on right now, I'm still I'm thinking about changing my time frame here. I'm doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two o'clock. I originally did it at two, you know, back in the fall because I want to make sure my evenings were free so I could watch Padre baseball. But we're now in the off season. I'm thinking about maybe shifting it to seven or eight o'clock. Do you think that'd be better? I'm all ears. And for those of you that are listening or watching now, let me know. Um, you can reach out to me on social media at John Riley Project on Facebook and uh, let me know what you think. Uh, but I kind of like the idea of consistent scheduling. I like the idea of doing this three times a week. Um, but I'm still trying to find out that sweet spot where the fits in my schedule, but also fits in yours. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about we're here at what, about 34 minutes. So we're kind of moving along. Um, the Cleveland Indians, um, Major League Baseball team, you know, Cleveland Indians who have been for a long time under fire to change their mascot name. And they finally made a decision that they're going to do it now. They haven't made a decision on what the new mascot name is going to be. They haven't announced a time frame. They haven't done any of that yet, but they have said that they are going to change. And I think this is a good thing. I think this is a, a great way to, you know, kind of 
move along with the times, right? Um, the Redskins finally have made that, that hard decision not too long ago. Um, and I understand from a business perspective, there's a great deal of, of um, should, what should I call this? Uh, brand capital that's built into your name. So changing your name is not an insignificant task. Changing your name is really disruptive to the way your company does business, but it's also disruptive to your brand identity. It's disruptive to the way people know you, understand you, um, and changing your company name. And in this case, from the Cleveland Indians to the Cleveland we don't know yet. I mean, that's not a trivial decision for a company to go through. And I'm sure that's a big reason why um, Daniel Snyder really resisted it for so long with the Washington Redskins, because there was so much loyalty to that brand um, that people just didn't want to switch. But sometimes the times require it. Sometimes it makes sense to change your name. And I, I think this is a great move. And, you know, there have been other teams that have changed their name in different times because the times called for it. And remember back in the 1950s during the whole McCarthyism era, and you know, there was the Red Scare and the fear of the communists and the Cincinnati Reds baseball team changed their name temporarily to the Cincinnati Redlegs. And then I think once the whole... McCarthyism finally died down. Then they went back to the Cincinnati Reds. But that was a conscious decision by the organization when they did that. But then I also remember back when I was a kid, um, I was you know born up in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and th there were Native Americans that had actually took control and seized Alcatraz Island. And this was in the late 60s or maybe the early 70s. And at that time... Um, there was a lot of heat around um, Native Americanism and equal rights and showing respect for Native Americans. And so at that time, Stanford University, whose mascot was the Indians, they changed their name and became the Stanford Cardinal, you know, singular, not plural, really the color, not the bird. Uh, but they made a decision to change their name. And I think that was the right move for them. And I think that's played well for them to, to in their favor. And now their actual mascot is a tree. <laughs> you know, that's what you see at, at a lot of the games. So it can be played well. I think from a business perspective, if you are savvy and you do this the right thing, I think you can build more brand capital coming out of this if you do it right. Um but there have been other teams, you know, a lot of times when teams move, they'll change their name. Like the Houston Oilers, when they moved to Nashville, you know, Oilers make sense when you're in Houston, but not when you're in Nashville. So rightfully, they changed their name and they became the Tennessee Titans. But I think there was maybe one year they were the Tennessee Oilers until they eventually made the transition. So the Indians making this move, it's a good decision. I support it. Um, but I wish actually we'd see more of this, you know, t teams changing their names accordingly. Now, I think there's going to be more. I think we're going to see more from this. Um, if the Redskins and Indians have changed their name, then I think this is going to put huge pressure on other teams that have names that align with Native Americans. So, for example, the Atlanta Braves. Um, they're going to be next in line. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs. And again, both of these team names, there's huge brand loyalty. And 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 there's what's the word? It's um, 
ah, can't think of the word is, is when you, oh, affinity. There's a huge affinity with a lot of these brands uh, where people are just core believers and aren't going to, it's going to be hard for them to give it up. But I think ownership is going to eventually going to have to, you know, move on this. I think there's going to be more and more of a groundswell to make these changes. So the Atlanta Braves, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Golden State Warriors, the basketball team of my youth, um, they're going to be challenged as well. Um, and then even like the Chicago Blackhawks, an NHL team. And I did a little research on this before, and I guess the Blackhawks refers to some kind of a military division. But if you've ever seen the um, the sweater or the jersey that the hockey players play for the Chicago Blackhawks, I mean, it's just a it's a it's a graphic of of a head of an Indian and a headdress. So. Again, I think we're going to see more and more pressure on these team names. But then what's the next wave after that? I mean, it's it's one thing to go after and change the names of Native American team names. But there's a lot of other team names that you could make an argument that maybe they need to change as well. Now, I don't necessarily support these, but I think it will take, for example, here in San Diego, the San Diego State Aztecs. Now, they've been... They've had off and on challenges to their name. Um, they used to have Monty Montezuma as sort of a, a logo, a face of an Aztec warrior. Um, and then he was Monty Montezuma was removed from their their brand logos. And then there's also the the. I guess you could say the 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 game day mascot of the of the Aztec warrior. I don't know if they call him Mani Montezuma or not, but it's it's a person. It's usually a student that's dressed up in a native um, um, native attire and a headdress and a um, the whole thing, and comes out with a spear. And for a lot of fans, it's really exciting. But then you wonder. Is San Diego State going to begin to fold on this, too? Um I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I know they're going to be under more pressure when the Redskins switch and now the Cleveland Indians switch. And if you get a couple more to flip, like the Braves and the Chiefs, the Aztecs are going to be under fire for that. Now, side note, by the way, a bit of a tangent. Congratulations to the San Diego State Aztecs moving up in the polls. They're number 18 in the AP poll, and they've got a big game on Friday against BYU. I'm talking basketball, not football. So, um loving following the Aztec program. I talk about them a lot on this podcast, but um, I think they're going to be under fire. And then the other one that is interesting are the Padres. And you're thinking, how could the Padres possibly have an offensive name? Well, again, I like the name Padres. I'm not suggesting it should be changed, but I know some people will probably try to do it. Um, One of the projects I've been working on um, is over the past, like maybe three to four years is I've been working on visiting every one of the missions in the state of California. And I visited about half of them and they're still, you know, for the most part, the remaining ones are all in Northern California. Um, I've gotten a few in Northern California, but got a few, a, a number more to go. And it's been a great trip. I mean, a great excuse for a road trip, a great project. I'm learning a lot more about California history, you know, at a much deeper level, obviously, than when I was in school. Um, And it's just a lot of fun to kind of go through the artifacts, learn. And like I said, it's just a good excuse to get my electric vehicle and go on a road trip. Well, as I've gone through these museums, you you learn that there has been a great deal of – 
of violence, of slavery that has happened when these missionaries in conjunction with the military um, at each of these missions has had, you know, natives, Indians, Native Americans have been um, enslaved, have been involved in violence and wars. And so the Padres, really, you think about kind of a fat uh, Franciscan priest, but really the Padres is a shout out to Father Unipra Serra and the whole mission movement. Would the pod, could the Padres possibly be looked upon as a, as a team name that should be changed? I wonder. I wonder. Um, and then, and then, you know, speaking for myself, you know, my name's John Riley. If you haven't guessed, I'm of Irish heritage. What about Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, Boston Celtics? I mean, that's another shout out to Ireland. Um, are those team names going to be in the crosshairs too? I wonder. I don't know. Um, but it, it, it is an interesting topic. But I do think that if there is huge pressure to switch a team name, then I think it makes sense pretty much from an ownership perspective to make that move. Because if their brand identity has too many negatives associated with it, they're going to sell a lot less merchandise. They're going to have fans that are going to be disgruntled. And I think making a change to evolve with the times is a smart move. Now, there are some team names that exist right now that I think absolutely positively should be changed, but not because they're offensive to some uh, group or, you know, to some native tribe or, or anything like that. But there are teams that just have stupid names that really should change. And I, and I'll, the, the easiest one to pick on or that is the team name and the fan base that I love picking on. And that's the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, you know, here I am. I was raised a Giants fan. Now I'm a Padre fan. So love coming out and calling out the Dodgers. But the name Dodgers is a is a is a shout out to their time when they were in New York City because their fans had to dodge the streetcars to get across the train tracks to get to the stadium. So that made sense perhaps when they were in Brooklyn, but does it make sense when you're in Los Angeles? I mean, ironically, they tore out all the streetcars in um in LA about a hundred years ago. Now they're starting to put them back in. But does the Dodgers name make sense for L.A.? No, it doesn't at all. I mean, that's one that should be changed. Or the L.A. Lakers, the Lakers. Now, they used to be the Minneapolis Lakers. Now, in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes, the Lakers make sense. But when you're in Los Angeles, that's a city in the desert. There's a there's a shortage of water in Los Angeles. They have to have water, you know, piped in from Northern California. This is a city that doesn't have enough lakes in the first place, and they call themselves the Lakers. That's a team name that should change. Um, the Arizona Cardinals football team. And my son is probably going to uh, get upset because that's the team he adopted once the Chargers moved out of town. The Cardinals makes no sense in Arizona. I mean, are there actual Cardinals like the, as a native bird in the Phoenix area? I don't think so. Now, of course, they used to be the St. Louis Cardinals. And I think prior to that, they might have been the Chicago Cardinals, I think. Um, but that makes no sense in Arizona. So that's a team name that should change, in my opinion. Oh, here's another great one. The Utah Jazz. I mean, that's a, I mean, when the Utah Jazz, they used to be in New Orleans. And that's when P Pistol Pete Maravich played for them, the New Orleans Jazz. That name made perfect sense in New Orleans. But in Salt Lake City? 
I mean, if anything, it should be called the the Utah Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I mean, if you're going to have a music reference, but the jazz makes no sense for Utah. Why did they retain that name? Um, to me, that's that one is kind of kind of foolish as well. What else? I got a few others. The uh, Memphis Grizzlies, an NBA team that originally was in Vancouver, where they actually had grizzly bears. They moved to Memphis, Tennessee. Tennessee doesn't have grizzlies. They have black bears, but they don't have grizzly bears, but they're still called the Grizzlies. So why in the hell do they keep that name? They should have done what the Houston Oilers did is when they moved to Tennessee, they should have changed their name. And, you know, the, the Houston Oilers became the Tennessee Titans. Moving is an opportunity to change your name because so you can be aligned with the history and the identity of the city itself that you represent. Um, the New York Rangers, another one. I was reading about this one because apparently the guy that was the owner or the GM of the hockey team in New York, his name was Tex. That was his nickname. I don't know if he was from Texas or not, but everyone called him Tex. And as he was building his roster, they referred to it as Texas, like T-E-X apostrophe S, Texas Rangers um, as a play on the Texas Rangers. And then they became the New York Rangers. But Rangers makes no sense in New York City. I mean, there's just so many other names that would make far better sense um, than the Rangers. Um You know, it's funny, like with New York City, it's it's interesting. They've got all those team names that end with ETS. They have the Mets, the Jets, and the Nets. And imagine if they had a hockey team that kind of embraced that whole idea. Um, well, they had the Rangers and I think the Islanders. Islanders make sense because they're on Long Island. Um, but the Rangers makes no sense in New York City. And then the other one that's kind of interesting are the Kings and the Sacramento Kings. And... This is an NBA team, and they used to be the Kansas City Kings, and then later they became the Kansas City Omaha Kings. But Kansas City has always kind of had that royalty um, angle because their baseball team are called the Royals. So when you have the Royals and the Kings in the same city, I mean, there's obviously no royalty in Kansas City, but at least there's like some commonality and you kind of have a theme for your team names. That makes sense. You go to Sacramento, the Kings, or maybe is that a shout out to the state government in California that is decreeing to close businesses down like a monarch dictator in the state of California? I don't know, but the Kings doesn't make sense in Sacramento, in my opinion. I mean, frankly, the Kings in LA don't make sense either. Um, but I don't know. Did the L.A. Kings exist somewhere else and they move? I don't know. But to me, that's a name that doesn't make as much sense. But the, the one sometimes this works out and sometimes the team name, they move and they move to a city and the team name really works. And that's the Los, Am Las Vegas Raiders. So you got like the badass Raider, you know, and they're in the Sin City and it's just now it's perfect. Uh, so, you know, I was an Oakland Raiders fan growing up. Back in the days of Ken Stabler and and um, Mark Van Egan and Fred Bolitnikoff and George Sisler and um, who was the who were the other guys on that team? Um, the assassin, what was his name? Gene, er, I can't remember some of the, their names. Um, they had Lester Hayes. 
Um, that was a good team back in the 70s, a bunch of characters. They were Raiders for sure in the 1970s. And then they moved to L.A. and they're still the Raiders. And that was kind of weird. They go back to Oakland. OK, re-embracing their roots. And now move to Vegas. And you're like, ah, perfect. So the Las Vegas Raiders, that's a good team name, too. But I don't know what Cleveland's going to do. I I know that they're not going to flip a switch and announce a team name immediately. They're going to go through a process, kind of like the Padres when they went through their process of just updating their uniforms. They, you know, this is a complete switch of a company brand. It's not something that's done flippantly. So I'm sure they're going to have focus groups. I'm sure they're going to do polls and surveys. They're probably going to have forums where they're inviting the fan base to participate just so they can feel like they're getting some buy-in into the process. Um, and it's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to take time. And then whenever they eventually make a decision, then it's got to go through the approval process at Major League Baseball level on the uniforms. And, and then that probably won't be available to the following year. So they've already said they're not going to have a new team name in 2021. And may not even be ready in 2022. But in the meantime, what are they going to do? Are they going to do what the Redskins did and just call themselves the Cleveland baseball team? But apparently they can't because I think someone else already owns that trademark. And then could they call themselves the Cleveland Spiders, which was a name I guess they had briefly um, over 100 years ago. But apparently they can't because someone else owns that trademark. So I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, but I think once they've announced they're going to move away from the team name, I think they're going to have to switch to some generic version almost immediately, almost for the 2021 season. And they've already made a lot of their – this has been a progression. They've already gotten rid of the Chief Wahoo uh, mascot, uh, the cartoon Indian, and now their, ma- their caps just have the letter C rather than the cartoon Indian. So I think this is going to – Take some time, but it'll be curious to see what they end up deciding to do in the short term. Um, and then, then there are movies like Major Leagues, you know, that was all about the Cleveland Indians. So, I mean, obviously that's not going to change. But to me, this is just interesting because it's the evolution of society and how sports is a big part of society. Um, I think that process to me is interesting. I think. Uh, we are evolving in a lot of ways. I think we're shedding, um, you know, a, a lot of the connections to um, bigoted or racist past. I think that's a good thing. You can argue whether or not Indians is degrading or a shout out of respect to Native Americans. Well, the fact you're calling them Indians in the first place, which this isn't the, the nation of India, um, I think is reason enough for the team name to be switched. Um, but I know also as a marketing person, I, I know that branding is a big deal and it's something that needs to be taken very seriously. And there's a long process to go through because uh, they're going to not only have to make the decision on the team name and make sure that it is embraced by the community and their fan base and their season ticket holders, but then they're going to have to change Everything, their entire um, external communications to the world, their uniforms, their um, their branding, their their signage in the stadiums, their merchandise, their apparel. I mean, everything. I mean, this is a huge decision. Um, so I'm very curious to see what they come up with. I know some people have joked a great name would be Cleveland Rocks. Um, you know, kind of a, a shout out to Drew Carey on, on the, and the theme song from his TV show. But there's already... 
the the Colorado Rockies. So you couldn't really have the Cleveland Rocks, could you? I mean, they have the Hall of Fame there for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which, by the way, is a great museum if you get a chance to go. We went, gosh, must have been about 18 years ago. Went and checked that out. And that was a really good trip. Um, but I don't know what other team name it could be. You know, the... Um, I don't know enough about Cleveland, so it's hard for me to say, but I'm curious to follow this and see what happens. But I'm also more curious to learn if there's going to be more pressure on other teams. And I wonder if it's going to actually impact our two teams here in San Diego, the Aztecs and the Padres. I think the Aztecs are going to get another wave of pressure, is my guess. I think the Padres are going to be mostly safe, but there might be a few people that will challenge them. So we'll see. Okay. So, um, wow. So we're, gosh, we're at 55 minutes. So thanks again for everybody for listening and for watching. Um, this is episode 194 of the John Riley project and, um, just, uh, getting ready for the Christmas season. I hope you guys are, you and your family are getting ready for it. You you can always reach out to me on social media. Um, I've got my Facebook page, John Riley project. You can see me on Twitter and my handle there is John Riley Poway. Uh, so we just welcome you to reach out, continue the conversation. Um, I do have a quote. I always have a quote to final, uh, to close out these, uh, podcasts. And I think this is a good one. This is from the 2004 election, um, leading up to it. And this was in, in a quote from the editorial board of the USA Today newspaper. And this was going into the 2004 election between Bush and Kerry. And they already had 2000 where the electoral college picked Bush, even though Gore had won the popular vote. So at that time, there was a lot of pressure on the electoral college. And USA Today said this about the electoral college. All or nothing systems disenfranchise millions of voters and prompt campaigns to focus solely on closely contested states. This year, the candidates are ignoring two thirds of the states because all the electoral votes in each appear safely in one another's camps. So certain outcomes so certain an outcome discourages turnout in those states as well. Though the system dates back to the 19th century under laws adopted by each state, it doesn't have to be that way. Certainly the U.S. Constitution doesn't require it. Okay, I don't know about that part. My understanding is, is the Constitution requires an electoral college. Um, this is interesting that they say that it doesn't. But it's definitely an all or nothing system. California gives 100% of its votes, all of them, to the winner of the popular vote. So it, all of them go to one candidate and nothing goes to the other candidates. It's not like our votes are apportioned. Um, you know, so effectively, if you're a Republican in California, a third party uh, voter in California, more or less your vote doesn't matter because California is so overwhelmingly Democratic. The, the, the Democrats are going to get 100 percent of the votes for California, even though they only represent about 55 percent, 65 percent of the voters. Actually, it's probably even less than that. Um, so, again, disproportionality of this it makes it a very unfair process. Um, and then but at the same time, candidates don't have to ca- campaign in California. I mean, when was the last time you saw a candidate campaign in California for the general election, a candidate for president? I mean, those candidates only come here for fundraising. They come here to get money. Now, you'll see them campaign here for the primaries, but not so much for the general election. I know Trump made a, an appearance 
um, when he was running in 2016, but that was the exception to the rule. Normally, the Republican and Democratic nominees have no reason to come to California. And the same is true in a lot of other states that are lopsided in one direction or the other. So it plays to their advantage. They can isolate, you know, five to seven states where they really need to focus their time and energy and they can ignore everyone else, which, again, makes the process distorted rigged and really an unfair system. So I would love to see the electoral college overturned at some point, but it's probably not going to happen, at least not in my lifetime, because North Dakota and Wyoming and Mississippi and Alabama and states that are reliably red, that are going to be Republican till the day they die, there's no way they're going to give up and vote against an electoral college that gives away their disproportional power. It's not going to happen. Um, so I know some people are trying to find an end around to the electoral college system. Some people are talking about um, having states agree to give all of their electoral college votes to whomever wins 100. Whoever wins the popular vote, that state should give all of their electoral college votes to the winner of the national popular vote, which is sort of an end around backdoor way of getting around the electoral college system. And, you know, that's kind of a backhanded way of doing it. In my opinion, the whole process should be junked. I mean, if we're going to have an election, it should just be based on who gets the most votes, you know, who gets the, in a baseball game, who gets the most runs in the football game, who gets the most points. That's who the winner should be. Um, Dana, uh, McGee Sterl chimes in here on the podcast. She says, electoral college votes are the only way Republicans can win at the presidential level. Right now, that's true. No doubt about it. Right now, that's true. Now, imagine in the future that could change in the future, depending on what happens and how how demo, uh, uh, dem, de, demographics shift and move. It may come to a point that that might be the only way the Democrats can win. But still, it's a way that gives some states disproportional extra power. And, uh, and, and frankly, it disenfranchises voters and it doesn't treat us all as equal. A vote in, um, in, in Georgia or a vote in Arizona is dramatically more valuable than a vote in California. I mean, it's not even close. Um, so the notion of one one person, one vote is thrown out the window, which really should be the basis of the way the United States really should elect its leaders is on that basis. Um, Dana chimes in again and says, it's since Reagan has a Republican won the popular vote, maybe Bush senior. Yeah, well, um, Bush senior won the popular vote in 92, but did not win a majority. Uh, because that was the Ross Perot year. And by the way, you know, Ross Perot did not flip the election in the favor of Bush or in the favor of Clinton. Um, or let me, I'm getting my, my elections mixed up. Bush senior won the popular vote and the electoral college vote in 88. Um, in 92, Clinton won. Clinton only got a plurality, not a majority. But it turns out, my point was, is that Perot effectively did not have an impact on on swinging that election one way or the other because they did a lot of analysis of this and pro voters were pretty much split down the middle. They would have voted for Bush or Clinton roughly 50-50 had Perot not been on the ballot. Um, I think, uh, Dana, I think in 04, 
I have to check my notes on this. I think in 04, Bush got the majority of the popular vote and the electoral college vote. I think that's true. Um, but I have to go back and check my notes. Um, but no question, uh, Trump never won the popular vote. Bush did not win the popular vote in 2000. Um, but I think the one exception since Bush Sr. has been Bush Jr., W. Bush, in 2004. So someone can double check me on that, but I think that's right. Um, so at any rate, so yeah, we, we covered Electoral College because today's Electoral College Day. We covered uh, Poway Unified and their, in my opinion, irresponsible borrowing of money. And we also made paid tribute to Kimberly Beatty, the outgoing uh, trustee on the uh, school board for Poway Unified. And then finally... Um, We talked a lot about the team names and the controversy with the Cleveland Indians and what are some of the fallout from that. So thanks again for joining me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. This is episode number 194. I will be back on Wednesday uh, for another episode. We'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye.